Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Daniel Roberts and this is Mental Health, Erasing the Stigma of Men's Mental Health. I have a very great guest tonight that's going to be joining me. He is a mixed martial arts and professional wrestling announcer as well as the play-by-play and announcer for the Albany Empire Arena football team. He's a very good friend of mine that I met in the wrestling business, and tonight we're going to have a very cool chat about his mental health struggles and his journey through dealing with mental health. I hope you all enjoy. That that was probably the most fucking adorable thing I've ever seen on one of... Right, so for anyone who's now listening to this, um, so Mike's daughter was talking to him about fixing her phone and it was about the most adorable damn thing I've seen in a long time. That was cute, dude. <laughs> Thank you. There's not enough adorableness with all this fuck all this fucking crap going on, dude. Like legitimately. No, there isn't. And it's you know, it it be people find it funny when I describe it like like the beginnings of The Walking Dead. Yeah. Totally. It, it's it's really creepy, and I mean, I was out and around earlier today practicing social distancing like a, a responsible adult. Yep. Um, you know, just running some errands, and you go to certain parts of Troy, and it is a fucking ghost town. I have a buddy of mine who... Um... He lives in downtown Glens Falls, and he took a picture. It was like noon on Sunday, and it was the traffic circle was empty, and it might have been like a well placed. Where's your phone? It's it's on the table, hon. Parenthood, dude. A little bit, a little bit more adorableness for you. All right, so so just that curiosity, how. Well, first off, you know, thank you for doing the podcast. We've had to reschedule because, as you can imagine, trying to keep any kind of life schedule going on right now, it's fucking impossible, dude. Absolutely impossible. And so how are you holding... I know know you and I have been trying to... You and I have been going back and forth trying to make this happen. God, for... Literally, I... Yeah, I... this This is the hilarity of the situation. Three weeks ago, I recorded the the first episode. I booked you the next day, and then the apocalypse happens. <laughs> you know, like I hate to hate to make it sound like that, but that's how long we've been trying to like figure out the right day. And like for you, you know, like you know, how are you handling this? Like, what goes through your mind? Because I'm sure, like we we share some similarities. Um, in maybe some of the stuff we're thinking, but like, tell me, tell me how you're feeling right now with all of this going on. Like you were talking about, it's like the beginning of the walking dead almost. And the keeper is, is caught up on schoolwork as much as I can, as, as we can, um, I spend a lot of my day staring out the window, just just looking out the window, and I'm thinking, I could be doing this right now, I could be doing that right now, and you know, don't get me wrong, 
for the for the first few days or maybe even week or so, it was it, it felt good to you know maybe sleep in a little bit, do some things around the house. But now it's to the point where it's like. I look at a bird flying around, and I'm like, I want to be you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I'm at the point now where I'm just staring out the window. Like, I, 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 I want this to be over because you start getting that cabin fever, caged animal. You're just pacing, and you're just kind of looking for something to do. Um, you know, they say, oh, well, now's a good time to pick up a new hobby. Now's a good time to read a book or do this, that, and the other. And and they're right, because if you don't, you're just... You, you, you're sitting there like... I, I hate to use the term like an animal in a cage. I mean, that's, a, that's an um, accurate statement for some. Yeah. You just find yourself walking back and forth in the house, and you get bored, and you eat, or you do this, or you do that, or, you know, if you're married, or you have a significant other you live with, you know, it's, I, I just, I, I find myself missing the simple things that you used to do, like being able to go outside without worrying about catching a fucking disease. Yeah. Or being able to see a friend and shake their hand without catching a fucking disease. It's, it, you know, one of the weird things for me is is because I'm dubbed by uh, the governor as an essential person, and you know, have working in the medical field being essential. I see this weirdness, much like. And I, I've joked about it on Facebook, and it's gotten like one or two laughs. It's almost as though the Infinity War end happened, and you're just walking around post-snap, and you're like, you don't know what to do. Like, you can't see your friends. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. Legitimately, I wake up, I get on the elliptical, because if I didn't, don't work out, I'll lose my fucking mind. Um Same here. You know, I drive to work. Mind you, I have a piece of paper in my glove box that says, if, you know, if you pull me over being to the cops, I'm an essential worker. Here's my information. Like, I have to have some, I have to have papers now to drive to, if I have to get pulled over by the cops, I have to show them this piece of paper because I'm going from home to work, back home and maybe order groceries ahead of time and pick it up in the Hannaford to go lane. Like uh, other than that, other than that, it's like the weirdest feeling. It's almost like we're going through the motions. Just Exactly. And you know, for me, at least on my end, uh I actually had a telehealth uh meeting yesterday with a ther a pretty cool therapist. And the way that I explained it is, is it's like, I saw shit like this in third world countries as far as the way some people acted. Like, you and I, we've been to the same uh, areas of the world together. And I told her, this is just a bad rehash of 2004. The only problem is, is it's like, you know, from at least my perspective, I'm somewhat domesticated now. Like I, yeah, like I, we have the good life, the one that we thought about when we were younger, and like, hey, I can't wait to get to that point. Finally, you get to that point of having the good life, 
and you know worrying about shit to do over the summer and then all of a sudden this like click in the back of your head is like hey motherfucker remember that feeling that you used to have like you should be having it right now like are you experiencing that with your own uh you know your own mind sitting there week in and week out now oh no, no question no doubt and i know exactly what you're talking about um, you know, cause you know, both you and I have been deployed to, you know, same area of AOR as they call it. Yep. Um, you know, back in world war two, Korea was a the, the theater and now it's an area of responsibility, but, um, you, you know, and, and a lot of my friends have been asking me, you know, like, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this? I, it's like, you automatically go back to your deployment days it's like first thing you do you develop yourself some sort of schedule to keep your mind active so you're not left sitting there staring out a window wondering what's going to happen next um but you know no question in my mind you know it's like it's it's a it's very weird it's it's like i i know i'm in troy but I don't feel like I'm in Troy. Mm. I feel like I am somewhere else. And where I li- the, the the funny thing is where I live is not far from uh, the Arsenal, Waterfleet Arsenal. Right. And if you go outside my house, certain point parts of the day, you hear Reveille. You hear the flag raising. You hear Reveille retreat. At the end of the night, you hear taps, and I go outside, and I hear taps, and I'm like, okay, this is, I, you know, and, and I said to my wife the other day, I said, I seriously just had a thought that we were back in Korea. Is it weird for you, because I can certainly, you know, 100% relate to everything that you just said, because I live in Saratoga. And in my, where I live, I can see the back of Lowe's and I can see Walmart. And the first thought that started going through my head when, first off, you know, can we talk about the ridiculousness of toilet paper for five seconds? Like, to, to, oh, God, please do. Because, like, here's one of the things that I'm sure you and I will, will talk about. Like, we've been to areas of the, of the world where you, you don't, first off, you don't have toilet paper. So for them, they're probably watching us on Facebook being like, what the what like this is weird but then the other thing is is you're seeing this animalistic almost bovine stampede for something that is so simple that them stockpiling it they've got toilet paper for years now and it's almost as though i sat back and like the the first day it hit me that wow something isn't right i actually went grocery shopping on a Friday after picking up my kid to go pick up some things for, for dinner. And I went to the meat section and I'm seeing people just grab handfuls. And I'm like, you motherfuckers know we're good, right? Like we're not, we're not, we're not bad. And then like the scope of it started coming out and it's like, did, did you find yourself during the the beginning of all this having those moments where it's like, Oh, you people are just figuring out what it's like to live in a third world country. And you've already experienced that. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, there were, we were, I want to say two or three days 
into the whole, I hate to use the term scare, because it's not a scare, it's, it's very serious. Yeah. Um, but two or three days into this whole, whole thing, I took my daughter, we went up to Hannaford, and, you know, same thing. Looking at all the aisles and how bare they were and everything, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you, you people are nuts. You know, and granted, they've never really experienced it, so I can't, I, it, it feels horrible for me to pass judgment, but, you know, and I was looking around, and I'm, I'm an observant person anyway, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there going down the aisles looking around, and I can tell who's a veteran and who's not. Because you sit there and you see certain people standing back, just standing back like this, <laughs> while other people are scrambling. And I look, you know, and I just look at him. I say, "You vet Vietnam?" It's like, okay, you 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 know um, what's going on because we've been through this. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you let everybody get what they got to get, and then you you purchase what you need to purchase. And, um, you know, the first thing I grabbed was baby wipes, man. Yeah, dude, like, as funny as it sounds, like, flushable baby wipes definitely were on it. But it's like, you know, my girlfriend already buys, like, stuff months ahead. So I'm like, all right, I'm, yeah. I, I know I'm good. But then I got to thinking about, then then the weirdness of it comes into it. Because the the sudden realization that what well, first off you became domestic like you became domesticated which is very hard for guys to admit to like i will now openly admit i became a little too i became domesticated by um choice but in something like this where you're sitting around and the meat shelves are empty except for chicken wings and like the pasta section is gone and you're just like I may have allowed myself to get a little too complacent. And I think that's what's going yeah. on is that we, we as a society and as guys have become complacent with the fact that we can go a quarter mile down the road and there's a grocery store and we go in it and we wave our hand in front of this magical door that opens up to this library of luxury. And then one day it's gone. Yep. Exactly. And now you find yourself trying to make do with what you got around the house. Mm. It, 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 and for some, we don't. For I think this is probably what it was like for. I don't know how you're. You're what thirty five? Oh God, I love you. <laughs> oh Jesus! How how? First I off, how fucking old are you, bro? Because you've aged like fine wine while I'm over here like bitter grapes. I am forty two. Fuck off, man. Fuck you. Um, so, so you're a little bit older than me. So your grandmother would have been a Great Depression baby, and your parents would have been the children of a Depression child. Yes. So the the way that I best have described this at work is I always thought my grandmother was a little off because I don't know if your grandma was a country grandma. Mine was. She had the coffee can next to the stove full of lard and it was basically all the bacon grease and whatever was a fatty that and she'd put it in there and then she had canned uh self you know self canned mason jarred foods all in the cupboards that the top look rusted as shit but you don't throw it away because it's still good oh yeah and i thought my grandma was a little weird 
And then now I'm like, nah, my grandma was a, was affected by the depression to the same extent. I think your, your kids and mine will grow up maybe a little bit more cognizant of just how good they've had it. Yeah. No, exactly. You know, and, and I try to instill that in my daughter now. Um, we don't waste food in, in our house. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up I grew up in an Italian household, so any empty plastic container, when you're done with it, you wash it out, it now becomes Tupperware. <laughs> <laughs> I've known some I've known some dudes like that. I won't lie. You know, you know, you said your grandma was a country grandma. Yep. My grandma grew up uh, was born and raised Utica, New York, Italian household. Mm-hmm. So they used every part of everything yeah you know when she was young she learned how to make sausage she learned how to you know if she needed to uh you know kill and pluck the chicken for dinner if she needed to um but yeah she had the same thing the fruit and everything but you know she used everything because you never know when you would need it and, and, and that's true in this case. Yep. And we're trying to instill that in my daughter. Or I should say who's, you know, right now she's five. She's going to be six in a couple weeks. Uh, you know, honey, don't waste food. You know, if you're not going to eat it, put some in the fridge. You can have some later. If you're not going to eat it later, then whatever. Yeah, we'll figure. We'll eat it. You know, let's be honest. We're, we'll eat it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. If not, I'll eat it when you're taking a nap and I get the munchies or whatever. Exactly. Um, but you know, you're 100% correct. This is, th- th- this is something that we never thought, or this is a, a, a uh, an experience we never thought would happen. So I think the majority of us, like you said, we get complacent. You and I, military veterans you know and then after a while you're just like all right you know what you know you get complacent you forget about a lot of your military training and something like this happens and then all of a sudden you need that training again and it's not even necessarily tactical training but it's just sometimes how you live daily life yeah like you know it's 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 weird that you know, it's been almost 10 years since I've been in and all those old things started to come back into the brain. And the funny, the funny part was the Friday after I, it started to dawn on me that something's a little up. I next morning, um, my kid was eating breakfast. My girlfriend was like watching him. I was like, I need to go to the army Navy store around the corner. And the first thing I did was I bought, you know, new boots because god knows as weird as it sounds you know once you put those on it's like it as weird as it sounds i haven't worn a pair in over a decade so it suddenly adjusted my ankles and like it hurt for like a day or two and i was like oh it's fixing the way i stand because i'm not standing properly all right i remember how this was (laughs) and then like it's adjusting my body almost like the the knee brace christian bale's batman had in the third one like oh cool i can ninja kick bricks and then, like, he looked up, and he goes, uh, we're considered non-essential, so we're going to be closing at 4 o'clock, so if you need anything, 
get stuff. And I'm just looking around. I'm like, okay, I need that knife sharpener. I need that container of mace. I need, and I'm starting to like grab stuff and just like load it on my card and be like, fuck it. You know, like this is as weird as it sounds. It's almost that you know what you're going to need if things go really wrong and you don't want them to go there. But when they, for you, you know, I can, you know, for you, what did it feel like? What kind of, uh, you know, demons did it rustle up? What kind of emotions were stirred when you suddenly sat back and you were like, oh shit, I, I don't want to feel this way again, but I know this is how it has to be. Like, did anything like churn up where maybe it was these negative thoughts where it's like, holy shit, it's. I've experienced this elsewhere. Now it's at my house. Now it's home. Absolutely. Um, because it's completely different, you know. When we were in, you have that whole mentality of it's about the person next to you. Mm-hmm. Well, now the people next to you are your family, your wife, your daughter, your kids. You know, when we're deployed downrange, it's your buddy, your, your battle buddy. You're in the air. I was in the Air Force. You're your wingman, and now it's your loved ones are physically next to you. And if shit goes south really quick, you know you you're, you're trained when you go into the military, regardless of what job you have. They remind you constantly. Ultimately, you are here to kill someone if you need to. I was a broadcaster in the military. My quote-unquote weapon of choice was a video camera. Excuse me. It was a video camera and a microphone. I got downrange to Baghdad, and they reminded me real quick. They're like, that camera is no longer your weapon. That sidearm that you have on is now your weapon, and you better be ready and prepared to use it. Um, because ultimately, you you are here to defend your country. You are here to kill if you need to. Um, and it really brings that whole aspect back. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm looking for someone to kill or anything like that. But it 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 shifts the perspective of the whole person next to you theory to now the people next to you. Are your spouse and your child? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I absolutely. Um, you know, it's a it's a weird thing. Now, how where were you, uh, who were you attached with when you were over in Baghdad? I was attached with AFN, the American Forces Network. Oh, that that's kind of I'm not gonna lie, that's kind of a sweet job. Um, you know, yeah. when you when when you're someone like me who is like civil affairs psychological operations and infantry you're just kind of like wow that is that is one of those jobs that the recruiters didn't tell you about it's like clearly your asvab score wasn't that high um they're like oh this dude can drop leaflets out of a helicopter at 2 a.m fuck send that fucker um you know it's like thanks um but like you you saw through your lens and through the area that you were in because I know where AFN operated out of in Baghdad roughly. I'd been to a couple of the the swank ass places that they were located out of um, right. in 2004, at least in 2004. So that's just my that time frame. Uh, when were you there? 
I was there from no shit Thanksgiving Day 2008 to Memorial Day 2009. Oh, Jesus, that's a shit. And, and that's and that's not, you know, like a generalized Yeah, that's like hard thing. like Yeah. Like I was in the, the my very first day I was in the defac getting turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy. <laughs> And you know, and the funny part about it is, it's like I'm. We're both laughing about this, and I know we're probably thinking the same thing. Like, first off, defact turkey is the drizzling shits. But it's like when you, when you have been traveling all goddamn day, and they're like mandatory unit fun. We're all gonna go eat this dried ass bird together and fucking suck it up. You're just like, yeah, let's go do this. It's like, fuck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> it's like fucking someone punched me in the throat but like you know the the funny part for me was i was in baghdad in 2004 uh doing psychological operations with a unit and then in 2008/2009 i was in the babel province with civil affairs so for me i got to see two completely different types of 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 people from the same country and the city always felt the city had a weird presence like it, it's hard to describe to someone who may not have been over there but it was its own living breathing thing and you got to see that through the lens and like i can t- remember vividly the smells of baghdad the sounds of baghdad um even the taste like there was an aroma in the air that like infiltrated your lungs and the the scariest thing for me, and you're in Troy, I'm up in Saratoga, I might not be in like a, a, see buildings in a city like you can from Troy where you can see Albany right across the river, but it's still sit, that city feel all of a sudden was right there again. And it's like, it's almost like a ghost you know how they say that you know if a ghost is real it'll pass through you and you feel that cold feeling it's almost like hey that is back like did you experience anything like that in your tour overseas because you like i said you got to see it through the lens of the camera which meant while it was being filtered through something you were just your eye was fixated on that the entire time your eyes couldn't take it off the city we experienced a lot of what I did. I actually traveled a lot around the country. So I got to see, you know, yes, I experienced a lot of it through the, um, through the lens of a camera. But while I had that camera in my hand, I was two to three feet behind, you know, soldiers, Marines, while they were conducting sweeps or they were providing training for Iraqi armies or or what have you, you know, I was still relatively close to the action. But there have been times, and as a matter of fact, you know, like I mentioned, I was with my wife and I mentioned Korea. There was a time recently where, oh man, where was I? It was driving through downtown Albany, and I drove through, like, just a small section of a neighborhood, and my eye caught something, and I was right back. 
I was right back. Like, the, the thing is with Baghdad, you know, you hear Baghdad and you think, oh, it's just war torn to the end. It is. I've seen Baghdad from, you know, 10,000 feet at night. I've seen it from 10,000 feet during the day. At that level, it looks like any other city, especially at night. Because all you see is the lights. Mm-hmm. And it it is an eerily beautiful city. Yeah. It is, you know, the, the, the famous... And, and you know exactly what I'm talking about with the, the crossed swords. Yes. The parade field. Yep. It's beautiful, gorgeous architecture, but you learn the history behind it, and you're like, fuck. You know, you know you're walking on Iranian military helmets as you cross under those swords from the Iraq-Iran war because Saddam wanted the Iraqi army to continuously be trampling over Iranians. And it's like... It, it's, it just blows your mind, but, you know, getting back to your question, yeah, there have been many times when I will automatically just go back for even just for a split second. I'll see something, I'll smell something, um, I'll go by, you know, and I, I'm not generalizing in any way, but I go past Middle Eastern restaurants and you catch a whiff of the food and you're brought back to a neighborhood, but it's a good, like, oh, man, that smells great. I remember we ate at this one restaurant or whatever. It doesn't always bring back negative memories. There's a lot of positives that brings back as well. Certain people you meet over there, whether they be American, Iraqi, or, you know, third, third world, just, it, it, it brings back so many emotions at once, really. Yeah, and... I can completely vibe with that. Like, I can sit here and, you know, know exactly what you're talking about, where a sight, a smell, something will will snap you back to that time frame. And I think for, for the negative times that I had, and mind you, like, if you look at it, those times may be adding up to a total, maybe 25 minutes. So 25 minutes of my entire first tour was real bad. You know what I mean? It was it was fucking terrible. Right. But there were still weird positives that came out of it. And I I guess for me when you try to explain that to some people, you know, there's this um you know, I I talk about it's war porn. You know, you've got these kids that play Call of Duty, you've got these people that watch war doc not maybe not documentaries, but docu series that aren't even documentaries. It's like Band of Brothers and stuff, um, Hurt Locker. And while some of them are real good, some of them are just so Hollywood entertainment that it's almost tough to watch because yep. you've you've got this mindset that everyone is Frank Castle and everyone is just tearing through you know, the bodies and stacking them and, and all that. When, you know, through through my prism and the way that I was there, I saw a lot of the hearts and minds. And I still carry those hearts and minds with me. Like, there were some great Iraqis that I met. For all of the great Iraqis I met, there were only a couple, a handful, that 
were obviously the fucking bad guys and you it's it's tough to even like think about that when you compare it to the good people that just maybe wanted their their country to go a different direction and weren't strong enough to do it on their own and for me looking at it like when you try to explain that to some people they might not get it and like it's it's almost as though you have to interpret and erase all of the bullshit that they've been uh trained to believe with military shows and whatnot because most people don't know anyone who's been in the military i think we're less than one percent of the population in the country and i think less than 10 percent of that has deployed overseas so if you look at the numbers game like it's very slim and yeah you know have you tried to explain this to other people and you know your wife included and maybe they just don't quite get it the way you were talking about the dude in Price Chopper with his arms crossed being like, this is some bullshit over ass wipe paper. <laughs> you know, like, do you feel like it's it's might be difficult to talk to your to people around you, or do you have a pretty good uh, ability of doing so? Well, I have a pretty good ability of doing so. The military runs deep in my family. I mean, my father served during Vietnam. My grandfather, funny enough was a DJ during World War II. He actually... He, I, I know, right? That's a fucking he job. Actually, Where was that job after the ASVAB <laughs> score? I had a good fucking score. He was, uh, he was he was a DJ slash... He was like the guy that sat in front of the... Uh, what you call it? He was the newsman. He would read the news of oh. the day and whatever, whatever. Um, he actually told me a lot of cool stories, some run-ins he had with General MacArthur. Oh, shit. Yeah, like the whole the whole image you think of General MacArthur with the big chin, the the what you call it, the corn cob pipe that's yep. out, like this long. He says every morning they would have to line up in front of his building while the general came in and did the whole thing. And he he was like, "This is not a joke. This is not a characterization." He would stand on the back of the jeep. One leg up, Captain Morgan style, with that giant ass pipe and the sunglasses and and everything, and just oozing with whatever you know charisma, machismo the man had. And he's like every morning with this shit <laughs> in khaki. It no doubt in khaki brown. That's the worst part. If you could pull off oh, yeah. that fucking pose in those those slim leg khaki pants, like God fucking bless MacArthur. Um, but you know the military runs deep in my family my older brother actually is currently going through war college in Rhode Island he's actually preparing to take the next step in his naval career where he's going to start commanding units god damn Um, yeah he's a a public affairs officer Uh, he just finished some time on the USS Gerald R. Ford Um, so we a lot of the members of my family have a general understanding of life in the military. My wife, um, before we got together, was actually married to an airman for about a good 10 years. Hmm. Um, and she worked in, within the Air Force system. She was the marketing director for the base that I was stationed at in Korea. Huh. Um, and being the morning show DJ at the time, she came in every Wednesday and 
did her show. This is what's going on around base. This is what trips we have available. You know, pushing the fun stuff to do on base. Yeah. That's how we met. So she understands the military life somewhat. But for a lot of the folks that don't get it, or that don't have friends or family that are in the military, you know, you know, you mentioned the Hollywood aspect of it. They're like, oh, you guys are just running around in the desert with your shirt off and machine guns on your back like this. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Nah, pal, that's not, yeah. that's not how it works. You know, I mentioned I'm in the Air Force and the first thing people say is, oh, you're a pilot. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I flew a plywood bomber. A plywood bomber. Yeah. Plywood bomber. I sat behind a desk. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's, that's fucking hilarious, dude. That shit's hilarious. You know. Oh, yeah, I flew a plywood bomber. Oh, my God, that must have been so cool. It's like, no, dude, I sat behind a desk. Really. Yeah, see, with... with with the way that okay so my dad did 21 years in the navy um his his the reason he joined was my dad i think was if i'm not mistaken and like i refer to this as undertaker level like i'm almost there but fuck this i'm gonna go do this my dad i think was three courses away from getting his his teaching degree in mathematics because he's a numbers whiz and his number came up for the draft and it was you know, either pick a branch or go into the army. And my dad was like, well, the Navy has this cool nuke programs and shit. That looks like it'd be fun number crunching. So my dad went the Navy route and was in Norfolk pretty much for 20, no, I'm sorry, 16 years. So he understood. And both my sisters had um, lackluster naval careers, you know, one one developed asthma and the other one fell down the stairs on her ship and like destroyed the discs in her lower back and then when i joined uh after 911 you know it was like i'm going army i'm not doing this navy thing like i can't i don't want to be on a boat for months on end and see nothing okay and then yeah. secondly it was like i want to have my feet on the ground you know, it's like, I want to be present. And then, you know, the only people that had ever deployed, like my dad went out to see an awful lot, but I never experienced that, was my Uncle Chuck was uh, Marine Recon in Vietnam. So I never had a conversation with him. And, you know, sadly and strangely enough, like my mom has said, like, you're the closest to Uncle Chuck the way that he used to act. And I'm like, that wasn't a good thing. Like, Uncle Chuck was, like, <laughs> God rest his soul, he died while I was on, on uh, tour in Baghdad. Um, he was an odd duck, to say the yeah. goddamn, like, he, like, looking back at it now, I now know what, like, people used to think he was shifty. It's like, nah, he, he, he saw things through a different prism. Probably the same prism you and I share, where we're like... We see it, but then you skew it right here, and it's like, this is the real picture. And I don't think yeah. people get that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, um, you know, you mentioned your uncle. My uncle was PSYOPs during Vietnam. He, um, he was actually, he was in the Air Force as well. He was training to be security forces, so he was training to be 
uh, for, for, you know, for folks paying attention at home, for our friends playing along. Uh, security forces, basically, he was training to be a cop. And he was in basic training, and what's the first thing they tell you in basic training is if they ask you to volunteer... Don't. Don't <laughs> volunteer for shit. He did. Oh, what did he volunteer um, to do? Uh, you know, the guy in the nice press blues came in. He's like, all right, so who wants to learn how to jump out of a plane? Oh, fuck. He went airborne. He sh- he, oh. he did, and he um, he did, uh, I, I, I guess you could call it psyops. He would basically go into the jungle and seek out North Vietnamese scouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily the soldiers, but go after the scouts themselves. Um, he spoke fluent Vietnamese, obviously. Um, and, you know, talking with my aunt years and years later, um, she would tell me about nights where he would be sitting up in his bed, eyes wide open, speaking fluent Vietnamese in his sleep. And then wake up and just kind of look around and my aunt, you know, rubbing his back, Jan, you're home. It's okay. You're home. Oh, okay. And just plop right back over and go to sleep. And not have any recollection of what happened the night before. Jesus. Um, but he will be the first person to sit down and tell you stories about things he experienced and, you know, things that he went through while he was over there. I think um, even though he won't admit it, it's almost like it's very therapeutic for him to get these experiences off his chest. Now, you know, the one thing that I have found is it... When I was, you know, I don't know how mental health was taken when you came home from your deployment. Because around 2000, you, you have to remember, I was second, second Iraqi freedom. Uh, and I can recall the way that command in 2005 treated mental illness and treated anything that even closely resembled what we would like have shoved down our throats is PTSD. Like, with your command and with the way that things were when you came home, how was it treated and did you notice any changes off the bat or was it a gradual thing where you'd start to pick up that maybe things aren't as as norm as they used to be? And were you able to get that off your chest and vent about it or did it take some time for you to want to do that I would have to say to answer all of those questions it's a little bit of both okay um when I got home um my spouse at the time was a cheerleading coach and we were stationed at Lodges Field Portugal Anybody that has been to Lodges Field knows it's an island about that big. About the size of a quarter. Yes. It's 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 very, like, it's, I want to say, 
20 miles east to west, 18 miles north to south. Jesus, that's tiny. You, you can you can drive an entire lap around the island in two and a half hours. Can I help you? Okay, babe, we can talk in a little bit. You want to say a quick hi to everybody listening? Say quick hi. No, you don't need that. Say hi. Look. But how can I hear him? It's okay. Here, why don't you go find mommy? Can I have your headphones? Tina, go find mommy. Anyway, I have a guest. Well, I mean, this is this is Armageddon, so you might as well have some good company when you're hanging out. <laughs> so you you're on um, a tiny ass island off the coast of Portugal, which to some sounds like it would be paradise. Oh, it it, it was. I mean, don't get me wrong, the island was beautiful. Um. When I came home from Baghdad, my spouse at the time was in Germany coaching cheerleading. So, came through Germany, then got back home by myself to an empty house. There's mom. Hi, mom. Well, completely forgetting that it was street bullfight season. On the island. Damn. Uh, if you've never seen an Azorian street bullfight, you need to Google it and YouTube it. It is the craziest shit you will ever see. They basically block off a street a certain amount of and it's lined with people and they let a bull loose. And you tease the bull in the street. No, no, thank you. No, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but, you know the, the 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 people will open up their homes and serve food and drink and this whole other other business. The way that they let the people know that the bull has been let out of the pen is they fire off a firework, a thunder boomer. So all, all you hear is just this loud kaboom. So I get home, and I'm literally laying in my quiet house enjoying the quiet, and then all of a sudden I start hearing kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And my first instinct, they teach you, that you know, you, you probably remember, they teach you get on the floor, get underneath whatever you can. That's exactly what I did, just without hesitation. And even after that, whenever it was street bullfight season, even though I was, excuse me, in the middle of this small Azorian village, I, I would hear this, and I'd tense up. To this day... Unexpected loud noises causes me, and, and it's 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 funny saying that because in pro wrestling, pyro lights and the loud music and everything, and uh, always unexpected loud noises. A lot of people don't see it, but there are times when I'm kind of like, I'll just 
it just causes me to tense up tense up a little bit um but there were times when after a while I started to notice I was seeing things in a different way I was thinking about things in a different way um instead of seeing things more positively it was always okay well now I'm just waiting for the other sh- you know yeah this great thing just happened what's going to happen to screw it up mm-hmm. or when is the other shoe going to drop it was always there, there was I was always waiting for something else you know you know what I'm saying oh absolutely um and it's not just me being, you know, a crotchety old man or whatever. That's just, you, you, you kind of, re- when you see things, you, you just, when you experience those types of things, it's just like there's always, you realize that there's two sides to life. You know, and we see both sides. In some cases, we've seen the third side, or we've seen a fourth side. Um, so it's 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 tough to describe. Um, but you definitely see life when you experience life through a very different shade of sunglasses. I guess is the best way I can put it. So. You know, you you experience these things, and then you are home, like home stateside. Yes. Was was there was there ever a moment where, especially now, you know, even we'll, we'll take that out of consideration for this, where you just kind of sat back. five push-ups for to stay healthy all right kiddo i was gonna sorry i was gonna say to to get guns but i mean i don't think she'd understand the the whole like flex (laughs) the flex friday i don't think she'd get it um okay so you come home and was there ever a time where you would sit back and just almost look at things from the perspective of all of this is finite and you you definitely pick up on it. And it's because of what you've seen. Did it ever make you angry, like, to see the things that people would complain about and just be like, do you realize how minuscule on the existence, the plane of existence, that this really is? Like, yes, you have to wait five minutes in line at Walmart in the checkout aisle, it's like, try having to wait 48 hours on a tarmac for a fucking plane to take you out of a shithole country. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, every day. Every, every day, and, and you know, it's something different. And, you know, there are times when, you know, I will get frustrated. Mm-hmm. You know, and I chalk it up to, you know, I, a lot of my friends have heard me tell, oh, I'm, I'm an impatient New Yorker and, and whatever. Um, but every single day I will hear, you know, people complain about, oh, my Wi-Fi is down. People freak out about this, that, and the other. And it's like, you know, there were times I went two and a half weeks without a hot meal mm-hmm. downrange. 
eating out of that little brown pouch. Blah. Yep. Blah. Exactly what I'm talking Blah. about. You know, and to think um, during this apocalypse, people are trying to get their hands on those. I'm like, well, don't plan to ship for a month. <laughs> you know, and I joke with I joke with some of my friends, and I tell them, you know. If you ever get the jalapeno cheese, hold on to that yes. shit, too, because that shit's like currency. Motherfuckers will trade um, Skittles for that shit, just so you know. Oh, Holla at your boy. Skittles. Holla at your boy. See, there were some packs that had the small skit packs of Skittles. Yes. Then you had the big pack of Skittles. If you had the big pack of Skittles, you were like Mr. Fucking Moneybags right there, brother. Yeah, you know, the best part about this is, is it's like only only those who have been deprived will get the humor in this. And it's like, do you ever find like your humor while it hits the mark with some people just falls on deaf ears and you almost get the what the fuck are you just did you just say like what are you what the fuck are you talking about? Do you get that ever when you're saying something like that? That's why I stay quiet most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, you and I, if, if you and I get alone together or we sit down with a couple of beers or maybe even, you know, you know some of the, some of the guys and the, the girls we know in the locker room have been veterans or whatever, you get us together. Oh, and, people don't know what to like, say. No. No, you just mentioned, you know, a couple acronyms and, MREs and snafu and whatever, and it's we can have an entire conversation and laugh our asses off, and nobody will know what we're talking about. You know, it's it's funny because how I met you was not through the service; it was through the wrestling world, right? And there's a different hierarchy right there because you know, and this this took me a while to understand, like the the politics that is wrestling. And where there there is a certain level of politicking in the army. I mean, if you think about it, we're just a branch of politics. But as far as you know, getting what you need, helping this person out so that you can get a, get maybe some shit you need. Nothing illegal, you know. All legal, of uh -huh. course. You know, helping helping each other out because you're all one team, one fight. But one of the things that I quickly learned uh, when I was in wrestling was. You really do have to watch out for number one. And that, for a while, it was like that. Up until the end of my career. And then it was everyone is helping each other and trying to, like, improve the show. Because it was very much a punk rock vibe for a lot of people. That's That was lacking. And that always used to piss me off. Because it was like, you know just it would it would bug me especially coming from the world where like you said earlier it's the guy next to you and the girl behind you you're all watching each other's back like yeah. was that was that ever something when you were backstage learning how to become a professional wrestler and a, a successful announcer did that ever sit there and just kind of like a sliver bug the shit out of you every single chance it could because there is you know there's you, you always hear you know especially a lot of the um, I hate to use the term everyday folks but you know civilians they hear about the camaraderie in the military like you said before the whole band of brothers thing it's like that group of men 
are going to be connected for the rest of their life, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there is a certain level of camaraderie, a certain type of community. Now, yes, it's the same in professional wrestling. When you look at somebody and you have, you know, maybe you have a match that brought down the house and you're going to be like, you know what, you and I will forever be connected through that one match. But there are people that I'm going to be connected with for the rest of my life through my experiences in Baghdad, Korea, and so through shared experience. And I'm not saying, you know, one is better than not saying the military is better than wrestling and so on and so on. Um, But there is that strong sense of camaraderie where you want to help the person next to you. And the person next to you will either say, you know, bring in that help. I love it. I'm always, I'm always looking for feedback from anybody and everybody. I will go to people from different companies, say, hey, look, uh, I called a match the other night. I'm not looking for a job, but can you just take a listen and tell me what you think? Mm-hmm. I do it all the time because that's that's how I see the wrestling industry. And maybe I have a weird sense of viewing it. I see it as almost like a brotherhood. Yeah. A brotherhood and a sisterhood. Because it's it's a very unique occupation to be a part of. As is the military. Yep. You know, but it's, it's two different senses of community. But yeah, I definitely notice, you know, that there are, there are stark differences, but a lot of similarity if you know what I mean now how long after your military career ended did you get into announcing and the pro wrestling world I had actually been an announcer since my sophomore year in high school okay so so I I've been doing announcing for well I should say public address slash ring announcing commentating for well over 20 years so it was always in your wheelhouse the army fit into it during that time where you continued to hone your crafts with afn and then after your military career ends you took a different dimension and were went to this weird world of pro wrestling i actually went to the weird world of pro wrestling while i was in the military no shit i didn't know that dude 2004, after my first deployment to LUD, uh, you can't even really call that a deployment because that place is like a fucking resort. Um, I remember I was at LUD, I was at LUD Air Base searching for pro wrestling schools in London, England, because I was stationed in England at the time. Mm-hmm. And I actually started my training at the Enfield Martial Arts Academy in North London. Daddy, is six minus... Six minus two is four, honey. She's got to keep me sharp. She's got to keep me sharp. Homeschool, man. Homeschooling kids in the apocalypse. At least you're teaching your kids math skills for when this is over. I'm teaching mine (laughs) spear-throwing and chin-ups. Poor bastard. Um, so you um, in 2004 you got behind the the wrestling stick. 2004, I trained in British style pro wrestling, very technical. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
actually had a number of matches under my belt when I got orders to go to broadcasting school. Nice. When I got orders to go to broadcasting school. Sorry, my earbuds were bad, so I had to swap them out. Ah, that's cool. Um, when I got orders to go to broadcasting school at Fort Meade, Maryland, so I had to leave the UK on military orders. I actually, I left, the company that I was wrestling with was a company called Real Quality Wrestling RQW. Um... They are best known for introducing the world to a young man from Scotland who, just the other night by chance, won himself a nice shiny championship at WrestleMania. And that is the six degrees of separation of WWE on, uh, once again, coming into every podcast that I cut. You know, I mean, the that is... That is insane, because at least for me, and I mean, this is really one of the first times that we've had a, a one-on-one conversation, because as you, for those of you that don't know the wrestling world and, and etiquette, when you come into a company, you shake everyone's hands, you, you, you introduce yourself, but essentially the way that I can describe pro wrestling and tell me if I'm wrong is when you get to the building several hours early, it's almost like a rock concert. Like, it's a bunch of people waiting for the show to begin, but they happen to be the artists putting the show on. So it's a lot of craziness, a lot of hype, tear down, pull up, put together, how's it look, sound check, mic check, he, do this, do this, bit, bit, bum, you know, heat, heat, you know, cut off, hot tag, faults, 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 pin, one, two, we go drink. And I mean, literally, I just called an entire match, so if anyone wants to steal that, go for it. Um... But that's literally what happens. So you get to meet these people. And, like, I met Mike a couple years ago when I was, you know, I came back to wrestling after a brief hiatus. And we we talked. But this is, like, the first time I've gotten the in-depth how you even got into this world. Yep. And then the only thing that I knew about your military career was you, you were in the Army. And then, you know, this is such a weird um thing and that we live in because we come from two of the similar worlds and yet at the same token it's it's weird how things work out because you run into people and you meet people at these wrestling shows and you never know who's going to be who's going to go where and then the cool part is is that you get to sit back and kind of watch history happen but we've already watched that happen when we were in the, the army. Like, it's yes. weird. Have do you ever sit there and contemplate like the ripple effects that you have, and just how that sits in your psyche? Like, wow, you know, this act. I was involved in this. And do you ever kind of talk yourself into this weird thing where it's like, kind of appreciate it, or does it kind of like, eh, sour a little bit here and there? With certain experiences? Um, with certain experiences, yeah, there, you know, there are times when I sit back and I say to myself, you know, holy shit, I was a part of this or I was a part of that. And then there are other times when it's, I sit back and I think, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, I guess it's pretty cool. I guess it's okay. Um, for the most part, I am, I am the kind of person where, 
you know, I, I love history. I love being a part of it. So I am more like I try to find the best parts of, of everything that I can. Um, regardless of how minuscule the event is. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. Uh, there are some times when it's like, it, oh, oh my God, you know, blow my mind I was a part of this event or... I'll go back and I'll look at something and maybe at first it won't hit me. And then I'll look at it again and just be like, oh, wow. You know? Uh, 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 like, at the time, it was one of those... I volunteered for it, and it was something I wanted to volunteer for. It wasn't like, hey, who wants to volunteer for this? Raise your hand and get a plane, whatever. Um, volunteered to MC this event, and they said, okay, it's it's a building dedication. You remember from the military, that's like once a week. Yep. You know, it was like a parade at Disney. They do one every day. Yeah, this this um, parking lot over here is getting dedicated. The, you know, right. we I, I was from First Cav. We were the kings of the dog and pony show. If it could be dedicated and there could be a camera there, we fucking figured out how to do it. <laughs> so they were dedicating a new wing of billeting. So for those of you that don't know, who are not familiar with the military building is basically like an on-base hotel. Mm-hmm. So like you go to visit the base. Uh, if you're a civilian or you're from another base, um, you, you'll go to building. And it, it's literally a hotel on base that you pay whatever. Um, so they're dedicating this new building to two Medal of Honor recipients who have since passed. One of them was a gentleman by the name of George Bud Day. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you. Not off the top of my head. Um, not only was he John McCain's roommate at the Hanoi Hilton, he is also the second most decorated American in military history. Goddamn. He escaped from the Hanoi Hilton twice. Um, shot down over Vietnam, captured by you know captured by the enemy, brought to the Hanoi Hilton, escaped twice. Um, torture, you name it, it, it happened to him. Um, the second individual was a pilot, an Air Force pilot by the name of Leo Thorsness. Colonel, at the time, he was a major, I believe. Um, he's the only American pilot to fight himself out of, it's what's known as, I think it was called the Wagon Wheel of Death. Imagine you're flying a lone aircraft and encircling you are just enemy aircraft and you're literally flying in a circle and behind you is an enemy aircraft behind them is an enemy aircraft and it's just a big circle of airplanes he was able to fight his way out of that god damn that's a badass yes 
also a resident of the Hanoi Hilton. At the time, I didn't think about it. Uh-huh. Um, I thought it was just another detail, so on and so on. Years later, uh, Colonel Day had passed away. This is maybe five or six years later. Colonel Day passed away, and it lit up the news. George Bud Day passes away, and I'm like, how do I know that name? And uh, sure enough, I had hosted the MC, and I stood, you know, I sat with the, with this gentleman and had breakfast with him, and he's telling me all these stories about Senator John McCain, and th- that's the part that I thought was Senator McCain, and so on, so on. And I didn't appreciate it at the time that I was sitting, having breakfast with history. And then I heard all the stories all these years later, and it's, you know, like you said, at first you don't really appreciate it, and then years down the road it really hits you that, holy, holy shit, I was, you know, sitting feet away from history. That's that's insane. You know what I mean? Like, that's one of those moments where the light bulb clicks and you're just like, whoa. Like, you know, it, it's almost like you're taken back, um, at least from my experiences with thinking about, you know, whenever news footage of that era is played and I'm just like, oh, I remember that. And then, like, there's a double take where it's like, oh, my God, I was like 100 feet from the Grand Mosque in the center of Baghdad, and I'm just standing there like, here's this 21-year-old punk kid, you know, with, like, chest puffed out, you know, pretending his dick is a sledgehammer with the lady, you know, it's like, all of a sudden, I'm just like, I'm looking at footage of the Grand Mosque, and I'm just like, I remember standing in front of that, and then I'm like, holy fuck, you were an idiot, like, you you were this dumb 21-year-old chimpanzee standing in front of one of the most historic buildings of all time, and all you could think about was, do these glasses make me look like a badass? You know, like... <laughs> and all you were doing was sitting there practicing your selfie pose. Yeah, like, like, I'm just sitting here like, goddamn right, I'm uncomfortable with shit and sweat's going down my ass crack, but I look like a bad motherfucker. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to to your military service, was, and, you know, we touched on it earlier... How far did you allow yourself to go before seeking any kind of help the first time? Because I know the pattern with with veterans is they'll seek help, but it's never consistent. It's more periodic, almost like um, charge-ups, if you will. Like they just get a quick recharge, they talk to someone, they get some stuff out, and they do some therapy, and then they go back out into the wild. It was there... One of those times was that kind of your pattern or when you realized maybe you needed help that you were going to go and get help for a consistent basis? I, I realized I needed to go talk to somebody when I was, I was actually home on leave and I was in Utica. I was at my grandmother's house for lunch. Um, in a meeting lunch, and we weren't really, there wasn't a whole lot of conversation happening, and we were just sitting there, you know, listening to the radio or whatever. 
my grandmother just looks at me. She goes, Michael, are you okay? I was like, yeah, grandma, I feel great. Why should no, 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 no. Are you okay? At that point, you, you know what she said. Yeah, yeah. I said, grandma, I'm fine. She goes, you're very quiet. This is not, or this is not you. Or are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. And she just gave me that, you know how grandmothers, they, they know. Yes. She just gave me the look and she was like, if you say so, okay. And that always bothered me because I never lied to my grandmother. Never. Um, and then after a while, I started thinking about it, and I said, you know what, maybe I do need to go talk to somebody. Um, and I started going to see a therapist on base in Portugal. I was in Portugal at the time. So I went to see a therapist on base, um, and I was diagnosed with, you know, severe anxiety. I was diagnosed with manic depression. I'm not afraid to talk about it. I'm not afraid to admit it. That's part of the reason why I'm here. Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed depressive. Um, and the doctor, he, he said that I suffer from what's called imposter what was it called imposter's complex ah where you you feel like you're a fraud and eventually people are going to discover that you are a fraud when actually you're probably more than capable of being able to do said job or exactly social environment that you're in um excuse me hold on and just so everyone's clear, he is doing the nose-to-elbow bend when he sneezes. Take some notes of this. Corona kills. Exactly. Now my elbow's got corona. Um, <laughs> There's going to be some great dark comedy that comes out of this shit. Um, so, yeah, you know, exactly like you said, but he said it's not just the, the imposter syndrome a lot of times will happen within the workplace. Mm-hmm. And, like, you could be, for example, you could be a lawyer. You could be, we'll say, a district attorney. You know, you've got 15, 20 years experience under your belt. You're a great lawyer, but you will still, still feel like you do not belong. He said... I suffer from that, and it's part of, you know, he, he connected it to my depression. Um, and I went and I spoke with him, and I got diagnosed, and really, he, he, like you said before, you know, we talk about it for a little while, and then I get released back into the wild. Then I go do my job and everything, and then I would hit another bout. And then I come back in, we talk about it for a minute, and I get released back out into the wild. 
you know, constant re rehabilitation, I guess you would call it. But um, it, it took a while after I got home before I actually sought out help. Um, I still, to this day, am seeking out help through the VA, through civilian doctors. Um, I still battle depression. Um, when I battle it, I mean, when I hit it, when I get hit with it, I get hit with it hard. Thanks around Thanksgiving, I, um, I got hit with bronchitis pretty bad. Um, and I was feeling great, you know, I was in the gym every other night, you know, anybody that was following me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, they're like, oh, I was in the gym again, he's in the gym again. You know, things were going great with the announcing and everything else. And then I got sick. And then I don't know what happened. I just got hit with a body depression out of nowhere. And man, I did not want to do anything. I didn't want to go to the gym. I just had no motivation. None. Um, and the way that the doc explained it to me, he said, you know, you have the depression, which a lot of the symptoms of that are you lose interest in things that you love. Yep. But now you have this imposter's complex where you feel like you don't belong. Or where you feel like you're, you know, you feel like you're a fraud. Like, I have 20 plus years of announcing experience, and I've spoken to other people about this, so there are folks that are going to listen to this. And they're going to kind of recollect conversations that we have had. Promoters, certain certain promoters and people in the locker room uh, that I've talked to. Um, I, I had this big bout of depression. Then you tie that in with the imposter's complex where, you know, you feel like a fraud and, you know, you then you lose interest. I was this close, this close to just completely wiping my hands and wrestling and just saying, I'm done with it. I, I just, I, I, I can't, I, I have no motivation to seek out bookings. I have no motivation to try to be the best damn announcer that I can be. I have zero motivation to seek out the advice of my colleagues, you know, people that I respect within this field. I mean, like I said, I was going to people from other promotions and other companies. I said, fuck it. And I, I just stopped. I just stopped. And I'm now getting myself ramped up to the point where okay, I'm ready to do this again, but now we're in the middle of the black fucking plague and I can't <laughs> leave my house. You know, and while your 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 recovery, your rebound from this most recent um bout of depression, 
your your rebound from it comes at a terrific time because at least you're optimistic going into the apocalypse <laughs> instead of of how some people are during this crisis where th- this may be as weird as it sounds they might have always had depression or signs of it but being non-essential and staying home for this length of time like people aren't used to it how do you feel with this going on do you feel secure in that you know that this has nothing to do with you it's not like you lost your job it's not like you know you the it's not like it was of your own doing you're having to sit back and for the first time in a long time maybe come to a halt and just be like weird like i guess the question would be are you feeling that same depression as you did in November? And if you are, is it because you're just waiting for the next thing to happen so that there may be direction? Or are you kind of seeing it like, okay, this had nothing to do with me, the the fear of what's going on outside notwithstanding, you're able to cope with this uh, event that's going on in our lives? Well, you know, I, I know that th- th- this event has, you know, is nothing to do with me. This is something beyond our control. Um, at first, I saw it as, you know, this is just something else. You know, I finally start getting confidence in myself again. Start feeling like, all right, I'm starting to feel like I can, you know, get back out there and take over the world and whatever you know and then you know everything happened and you know I kind of look at it as something saying okay we as a people we collectively need to slow down and reevaluate where we are and that's what I'm doing so so by we as a people do you feel that it is us as a, a society as a whole us as a planet us as the human species needs to just see what is important because i mean let's let's look at when this happened you know at the beginning of january we thought we were heading into world war three legitimately there were some people the third day of of 2020 were like holy shit we're going to nuclear war with with iran and then in february we had to sit back helplessly as australia burned you know and millions of animals are just eradicated and then all of a sudden it's like well because of an incident in china and the growing epidemic yeah it's now here in the united states we we knew about it in january but we just didn't think it was going to get this big it's kind of like this was the worst time to, to to try and rebound and you're you seem to be doing absolutely well and the best part about it is i think a lot of that comes back to our training like you've said like, we have been able to experience a, a piece of life that I don't think a lot of people can, and it's invaluable right now. You can't teach that kind of resiliency to people over a webcam. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I mean, I, I think it's... I mean, at least I hope everybody is taking it as an opportunity to, to kind of sit back, slow down sit back and reevaluate what's important to them, what's important to 
you know, to us as a people. I mean, anybody that has come across me in the locker room knows that I am very easy to get along with. I'm a very easygoing guy. I, I, I'll, I'll be, I'm always there to joke and laugh. Um, but I, I tend to be quiet. I tend to be, a, I'm a very observant person. Just because I'm not quiet don't mean I'm not studying the room. It doesn't mean I'm not, you know, and, and, and you know exactly what, oh, uh, yes. what I'm talking about. Yep. You know, you know, there's that old joke with uh, Mad Dog Mattis. They have a plan to kill every single person you meet. <laughs> you know? yeah, uh, yeah, when you're when your ex, like my son's mom, uh, you know, I'll be sitting there or standing there and she'll be like, we'll be at birthday parties. And she'll be like, could you not give the face? And I know what that face is. It's the half scowl, half thinking look that I'm looking at every single person. And I'm like against the wall and she goes yeah could you not that teach that to our son like can you not teach him that look like it is weird that i i identify with that and the cool part is is that you're not alone that people do identify with that it's just a weird small segment of freaks that do yeah funny thing is it's funny you mentioned that face uh a few months ago when uh, I think it was Immortal Championship Wrestling, we were doing a show with them. He had Billy Gunn. Yes. He our... was on the show, which yep. him and Tyler Vincent tore the fucking house down. God, that was an amazing match. That was a great match. Uh, Billy Gunn caught me giving him that face. <laughs> yeah. It, um, Jeff Jarrett caught it at in, in your uh, in-your-face wrestling show. Uh, event that he was at and he goes are you alright and I'm just like oh yeah I'm good and he goes alright and just walked away because I'm standing there like trying to get into character and I'm seeing through the brick wall and I guess it was enough for him to be walking by being like what the fuck is this kid he's like are you gonna shoot this place up son like no no I'm good I'm white I'm not that white um now I know this is going to come off as a weird question, but I always talk when I talk to people who have been in the service who are open about their mental health. Okay, so first off, that is all that was at one point like super taboo to even bring up that you were having any thoughts, let alone that you were going into therapy, let alone that you were doing it willingly. Because it was one, it was one thing if command made you go to therapy. Or made you go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Or made you, you know, seek some sort of professional help. But if you volunteered, it was almost looked at... I know throwing this word out there, there might be one or two people who are like, wow, that's a bold statement, but I could explain myself. It was almost treasonous to the unit that you even think of going in. When you started seeking uh, help, were you open or did you keep it kind of, you know, hush hush that you were even seeking help? And when everyone around you started finding out that you were going, what was the reaction of, of the guys? Um, at first I kept it hush hush. Um, and I started kind of going on my own until my first sergeant saw me leaving the mental health facility. Um, well then they didn't call it mental health, it was life skills. Yes. Um, he saw me leaving life skills one day. I didn't know it, I didn't see him, 
but you you know how first sergeants are they like hide in trees and shit yeah um you know he calls me into his office the next day sits me down and he goes uh you okay son I said yeah yeah sure i'm good why He's like, oh, you know, I, I was driving back from whatever meeting I had, and I saw you leaving life skills. I just want to make sure you're good. Things are good at home. Said, yeah, we're good. And he kind of looked at me. He goes, talk to me, son. He's like, I've seen a lot in my day. I've seen a lot. Talk to me. And I, I kind of played it off like I'm like, oh, shit, what do I say? What do I say? And eventually, we kind of started opening up about it. He was very receptive to it. Um, when I talked to my supervisor about it, luckily they were very receptive to it. They were they you know they were very happy that I took it upon myself to go seek out help. Some supervisors, I had heard stories of some supervisors who weren't so thrilled that their airmen or soldiers were going to seek out help because, like you mentioned, it was seen as treasonous. It was seen, well, not really treasonous, but it was seen, uh, you, you, you were automatically pegged the weak link in the chain. Yeah. Um, I... And... For a lot of people, they were seen as they couldn't be trusted, um, or it was seen as detrimental to their career, depending um, on, on what career you worked in. Yeah, that's, yeah. And that's unfortunate, because I believe, looking back on it, and you can probably attest to this, there were probably a lot of guys around you that were in the same boat you were in. It's just instead of seeking counseling and getting help, they hid behind the bottle, and that caused problems with their career where they were just looked at as a shitbag. And when you're pegged the shitbag versus the weak link, I, would, I at times would have much preferred weak link and proven them wrong than the shitbag and have them talk to you about your behavior and your alcoholism or, you know, how you're never going to get promoted because you just can't be trusted because you are the shitbag of the unit. Yeah. See, this is, this is kind of where wrestling all ties back into everything. Um, because I did see a lot of my friends, I saw a lot of colleagues in the military, like you said, hide hide behind a bottle, or hide not just a bottle of booze, but sometimes a bottle of pills. Mm-hmm. Hide behind, you know, whatever the doctors were prescribing them. And I remember distinctly a very good friend of mine who was a fantastic airman. He started off, you know, great promising career. Um, he got deployed. Um, apparently had gone through an IED attack on Rude Irish. Yep. Um, and again, for those of you playing at home, Rude Irish was a stretch of road that went from northern Baghdad to where uh, the international zone was, which is pretty much like central 
banged out. It was like a long stretch of highway. So we'll we'll just we'll just say it was like eighty seven north and south. Yep. That's Check accurate. Thing. Very well, accurate. Um it was deemed the most dangerous highway in the world because there were IEDs pretty much everywhere. Um well he had got hit in an IED attack on Rude Irish and just changed him forever. And he spent the rest of his military career in and out of trouble, DUIs, and eventually got kicked out. Um, I dealt with my depression in the gym, and that's part. That's also kind of when I decided that you know I really need to immerse myself into this wacky crazy world of professional wrestling that I'd always been a fan of ever since I was a kid um and then when I started training and I started learning the business and I started because I I didn't just want to learn to take a bump yeah. I didn't want I wanted to learn everything I wanted to learn you know what makes a good heel? What makes a great baby face? What makes a great storyline? What makes this? What makes that? What happens if this happens? Um, so I immersed myself in it. And that's kind of how I handled things. Like you hear people say, oh, Professor Wrestling saved me. I believe it did. Because for a while there, I was in the pubs every other night, drinking and just for no reason. I'm going, oh, it's Whiskey Wednesday. You know, I, I I actually do because it was thirsty Thursdays for us. Like, like how bad do you have to be? How bad do you have to be that you know Thursday the night before the night you go out drinking you have to drink a lot in order to get ready for the night you guys usually go out drinking. So I one hundred percent get that. From from my perspective, I'm glad to hear that your command was as cool as they were about it because for for us we had a completely different um set of circumstances in first cav where i was because what happened for us was and i'll never forget this day and when i tell people this story they they think it's a lie but i i can corroborate it this is no shit the the 100 truth of what happened that day it was may of 2005 and by this time, I'd already been well into my issues, like so deep into them between the, the knee tear, the prescription pill addiction, the post-traumatic stress and the alcoholism all just kind of swirling at once. We showed up at Division Main and we were going to march down a, like barely a quarter mile, you know, turn you know, go straight, turn right. We're going to, I think it was Iron Horse Gym, if I'm not mistaken. And we, they had set up um, tables where the mental health unit was stationed, was at. And they gave all of us a questionnaire. And we were told before we walked in there to sit on the bleachers in the gym, which was, you know, a giant basketball court and everything with, like, these parishions and or partitions and shit. Uh, we were told, if you value your military career, you will answer no to every single thing that is on these pieces of paper today. And everyone just kind of was like, who? And meanwhile, unbeknownst to them, I think I was still high on Vicodin that day and just not caring. 
Um, because when I tore my knee out, the five hospitals that I stayed at on route to, um, uh, home, home station, uh, gave me a lot of Vicodin. So like I had pill bottle. Oh, look at that. That's a pretty picture. Um, pill bottles just full. So if I was having a rough day, I'd just pop a couple. And I started reading the questionnaire and I'm like, you know, on a scale of, on a scale of zero to zero to five, you know, you do this and classic, classic, you know, pick you apart. Like just see where your score is like real basic psychology 101 shit. And I'm like reading it and I'm like, wow, that is me. Wow. That's me too. I strongly agree with this one. Holy crap. That's terrible. I walk up, I give them to it. They're like, oh, go wait over there. They do the tally, and then they're like, you know, Specialist Roberts, would you like to come with us and talk about this? And I'm like, sure. I can sit here and talk for a few minutes. And they're like, how often do you drink again? And I'm like, well, 12-pack and a bottle of Jaeger a night. And they're just like, every night? And I'm like, yeah, why? And they're like, what makes you do this? And I'm like, well, it helps me sleep on the couch because I can't sleep with my wife because I'm pretty sure she hates me and my dog is out here and it's how I get to sleep at night. And they're like, and you wake up the next morning and, and I do it all over again. And they're like, do you, do you want help? Sure. Next day, boom, I am, I am getting my ass chewed out for giving honest answers. My company commander was pissed that anyone, because of course that looks bad on him, and he was, uh-huh. he was just trying to like up his career status. Like he was a MP, he was a douche. But like, when you look at it, you just kind of sit back and you're like, that kind of shut me off because the reason I was doing that was to get my life together and get better. Clearly, you guys are more worried about that, and that was actually what soured me on the army for a while. Um, I kind of, I kind of tuned out whenever they would talk about stuff that was deemed important and that's when i started watching the calendar being like okay as of january 3rd i can leave the military it's may i can make it seven more months and then six and then five and then like it became a countdown while i was basically trying to hold myself together with rubber bands and glue before like shattering when i finally got back up to new york so it's like to hear that your command had a completely different um, outlook on getting mental health and that the people around you were all in support, that's that's actually really good to hear and really refreshing to hear um, from yeah, another veteran. Were, you know, like I mentioned, you know, like you mentioned, there were some and, – and, and you know what? I you, you tell that story and it's like I know exactly – what you're saying because I've known dudes that were like that that were so hard nosed that they're like you do not talk about mental health you keep that shit to yourself mom that's what I need um why don't you go get mommy um if you do talk about mental health boom you're automatically the weak link um or you know it's used against you when it comes to promotion time. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned,
fortunate. I was lucky enough to have a first sergeant and a commander who were uh, understanding. Yeah. And they actually commended me for voluntarily going forward and saying, I, I need help. I need someone to help me in this process. And, you know, I wish, honestly, like, mental health within the military was taken more seriously. In fact, when when I started, you know, getting my psychology degree, the reason I did it was veterans' health. You know, that was the number one thing, because in 2009, I ended up locked up in MHU for 72 hours in Glens Falls. And it was the reason that happened was I was, I'd had a real bad bout of drinking, after my second deployment, I pretty much drank myself into a stupor and lost my shit one night. The next day, some people, you know, some friends, bring me to um, the VA office in Glens Falls, and I tried to get in with mental health, and they were like, yeah, come back after the Christmas break in two weeks. And my one friend's like, yeah, yeah, I say that, and you're like, what? It's like, no, this motherfucker said, come back in two weeks after the Christmas break. Because it was a you know a couple days from Christmas, and my one friend looked up and goes, "This dude ain't gonna make it to Christmas," and you know they're like, "Well, what do you mean?" And, and my girlfriend at the time was like, "He's gonna hurt someone. Like you don't understand that he's gonna hurt someone." And that was the only way I got help. And like you think about how how scary that is, and it's like, then you take the rabbit hole into the VA system. And you said that you've gone through the VA and through private um, counseling. Which one do you find is better? I know that the VA is obviously geared towards veterans and veteran needs. But do you feel like sometimes, yes, although you're a veteran, that's not always the root of the issue. Like sometimes it's just life in general. So you prefer talking to a private clinician. Um. You know, sometimes I prefer talking to a private clinician because, you know, you go to the VA, and I'm not knocking the VA. I mean, the VA system, it is a broken system, but that is common knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not knocking the folks that work at the VA because some of them are, are very hard workers, very dedicated workers, but they've heard the same shit over and over again for years and years and years. So I go in and say, well, I'm depressive. Okay, why are you depressive? Because of this, 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 this. They're like, all right, you know, here's here's this, here's this, here's this. Take these. We'll talk to you again in three months. Yep. Um, you go to a private clinician, and, you know, I distinctly remember the first time I met with um, the doctor that I had been talking with and he says to me, he goes full disclosure I am not a veteran he's like, I've never served a day in my life in the military he said, but I will listen to whatever you have to say I can't say that I sympathize or empathize with your experiences I can't say that you know, I, I understand how you're feeling. He goes, but I am here for you. I will help you out whatever way I can. 
and then I kind of looked at him and I said, you know what? I respect that. Yeah, that's an honest... Yeah. Yep. You know, and I thank you for telling me that. I respect you for that. And, and to be honest with you, it, it's, it seems more like he's listening because he wants to learn about my experiences as opposed to just hearing, okay, well, I've heard about this for, you know, X amount of years. Yeah. Um, but he does sit there and, and, and tie it to everyday life because it's not just the military that has caused, um, you know, that, I hate to use the term that's got me to the state I'm in, but it's it's just a lot of things in life. Yeah. You know, it's not only the military, but it's a lot of things in life. And being able to talk to somebody about it has made it so much better for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, do you... Have you... Or do you currently use any kind of pharmaceutical help, or do you you go a different route in order to help with the anxiety and depression? I do, um, very limited, and that is through my own choice. Um, there is a history of substance abuse in my within my family, mm-hmm. and again, that's that's very out in the open um and I personally am like I work like you know the gym um I seek other routes um I do have some pharmaceutical help but not much You know, like I said, because there is a history of substance abuse in my family, I don't want to go that route. I don't want my daughter to see her daddy drugged up all the time. Yeah. And, you know, just my own... I've always been the kind of person where if I need to fix something, I want to fix it myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Until I get to the point where, okay, you know, maybe I need to seek other avenues. And I, you know, I am in absolutely no way knocking people that go that route because I understand how it is. I, I know how it is. That's just my personal, you know, my, my, my choice. Yeah, it's one of the things that turned me off at my initial, when I first went to the VA seeking help in 2006, when I was off of active duty before I get what, you know, joined the reserves was, I mean, you explained a little bit of what you're going through and all of a sudden it was, well, here are these pills. And at the time I was like, ah, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Two at two in the morning, one in the afternoon, and then this one for sleep. Okay. That's great. Except the the laundry list of side effects that came with it, rapid weight growth or weight gain, um, erectile dysfunction. That was a fun one. That was that was a great one. Um, oh yeah, yeah, completely. I could have, and I know this is going to get me in trouble at least with someone. I could have had a pack of strippers on me, and I would have just been like, "What are you doing, guy? 
Like, what are you doing? You're killing me here. But that was the meds. And then, oh, well, those didn't work. Well, let's switch these ones. So then it's like rapid weight loss, no appetite, uh, insomnia. So, like, it it became, I think, between 2006 and when I eventually got completely off of any kind of pharmaceuticals in 2011. I think I'd been on over a dozen maybe 17 or 18 different pills give or take throughout that entire period just trying to keep some balance some normalcy and even then like um yeah i just i i couldn't handle that especially like you said the zombie feel like to be completely detached is one thing but to be pharmaceutically castrated i felt was a lot harder to to cope with um especially considering you know my mom one time like she was like you're out of it like what are you on and i'm like oh my meds and she's like yeah no not these ones these ones are bad it's like you you notice it and i'm gonna agree with you as far as seeking outside counseling for the va but i love how your counselor had the approach to it like i'm not a vet but i'm here to listen which is the only thing you could really want for my end. I think I went through, oh, I went through three counselors in less than 18 months at Albany Stratton VA. Right. One of them got pregnant, which you can't help it. You know, she, she was having a kid. The second one was so goddamn good that she ended up leaving Albany and going to Syracuse and helping to run the behavioral health unit out in Syracuse, which is great. So, so they, were managed to get a really good one there and then the third one i think i had one meeting with him and i was like nah because he looked up in that first meeting and says uh well i'm actually not gonna be here in two weeks i'm uh going to another va in like phoenix and i'm just like all right dude why are we even sitting yeah like are you, are you basically telling me that I have to wait for the next? Okay, cool, thanks. I'm done. And uh, I started seeing my counselor, you know, last year. Uh, civilian, she's great. Like I prefer, I prefer that route because they come into it with, like you said, a clean slate. And if they have seen veterans before, they at least have some idea of what they're dealing with. It's not like someone who was once a sergeant major who had a psych degree who decided to become a counselor at the VA. And now it's like, you know, do some chin-ups. You'll feel fine. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which, by the way, that's not a knock on chin-ups. Chin-ups are great, ladies and gentlemen. You should do them. Do them as often as possible. But it's... Yeah, yeah. So I got to ask you, you know, with everything going on in the world today, do you look back at the trials and tribulations the military life gave you and all the positives, the immense positives, as we alluded to earlier, like the, the negatives are probably a small little stack next to the mile high amount of positives. Do you feel that because of that experience, it's gotten you prepared for this new world that we're potentially walking into and if yeah then how would you tell someone who has none of these experiences how would you reassure them 
of the future being decent after all this? That is a great question. I try. I have those every once in a while, dude. Like every once in a while. That, that one. That one's brain cell. That one synapse just fired the, right the, at the right time, man. The, the one that wasn't hit by Rick Recon in a chair match. You know, the one brain cell that's still like, oh hi, guy. I do, um, and and I mean that in the sense of in the military we are always taught, and you you remember um, to adjust. You know, there's the uh, what, what's the term? Uh, adjust, fire, move forward. Yep. And that's kind of how it is now. You know, we have to be ready for anything and anything can be physical, mental, uh, COVID related or what have you. This is definitely going to change how we live. We have to be able to adjust fire on a dime and move forward. Now, moving forward, you know, to anybody out there who is concerned, you have every single right to be concerned. You have every right to be nervous and every right to be scared because this is going to change our lives one way or another. But it's going to be okay. You know, it you know, automatically, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? Because I've... It, it'll, it will be okay. We're going to have to change some things. Things are going to be different. But it'll be okay. We're going to continue to move on. We're going to continue to live. You're going to continue to love your neighbor. You're going to continue to love your friends, your family. Um... Are things going to be different? Yes. But over time, they'll become the norm. Uh, And you can either be afraid of it and constantly be in fear of what's going to happen next. And, 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 you know, saying it is a lot easier than feeling it. And, And I'm not... I'm not knocking anybody who is scared. I'm saying you have every right to be scared. I'm scared. But I look down the road, and I've I've always been this kind of person that looks at things and it's like, you know what, it's going to be all right. We're going to be okay. We're going to move forward. We the, the, the best thing to do is move on. And my father actually used to say something to me. He always used to tell me, he's like, Michael, worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. He's like, constantly worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. Sure, it gives you something to do, but you don't go anywhere. It gives you something to do, but you can't move forward. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, Dad. You know, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be worried, but we'll be okay. That's we'll be okay. That's damn good advice. Um, And, I mean, I... I can't think of a better way to end this podcast. Uh, so first and foremost, thank you for finally getting on here. My God, we'll have to do it again 
you know, later down the road. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and when this is over with the, uh, I mean the COVID and for those of you who are listening in another state, we are in New York. So we are on one of the most locked down red zone states for this, uh, pandemic. And when this is over with the first beer is on me because I will not wait. And I don't care if it's in a driveway. I don't care if it, wherever it is, I don't even need to go out to the bar. Bars are stupid charge me 15 bucks for the same drink i could buy for 12 at the liquor store um you know but dude um thank you for coming on tonight's podcast thank you for recording thank you for being so open about um your life and your experiences and more important than that you know thank you for for maintaining positivity in such uh an unprecedented time at least in our lifetime i think comparably the only thing i could think of would be 9-11 and you know, it was the nation came together, but we were able to actually come together. Now we're expected to be together separate. And I mean, thank God for things like Skype and, and whatnot, Zoom, exactly. so we can be in contact with people. But um, I wish nothing but the best for you and your family during these times. And, you know, I love you, brother. Thank you for coming on the podcast tonight. And I mean, this was this was a real treat. This was really awesome. And you know, if if anybody listening out there wants to get a hold of me, by God, feel free to get a hold of me. If you know, if you're a veteran, if you're not a veteran, if you're you know in the wrestling community, um, and, and you just want to chat, by God, find me. Now, where can we find you on social media? Because that seems to be the outlet for everyone. <laughs> All across social media, I am Mike A. Falvo. Pretty easy. Um, or you can just search me out on Facebook, what have you. Um, also, you know, I'm, I'm available once we're all released back into the wild. That is the professional wrestling, mixed martial arts, boxing world. Here comes the shameless plug. Oh, oh plug away, dude. Plug away. <laughs> um. You know, if you're looking for a new fresh voice for your for your uh, for your events, you know, I sound like garbage right now because I'm all congested in a dusty old room. But um, seek me out. We'll check dates. We'll make it happen. I'll come out to your venue. There's a couple places I was actually supposed to debut in ETWA out uh, Vermont. I was supposed to debut the week that all of this hit. Yeah, um, March was going to be a big month for a lot of dudes. And yeah. Yeah. And then it just kind of all went out the window. You know, you got, uh, there's a major event happening at Waterfleet. Um, I was going to call that event at the Norman Waterfleet for the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, which, by the way, I have to give a huge shout out to everybody involved with that. Tony Villano and the rest of the crew. They're really putting themselves out there to get the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame back here in New York. Um, if you haven't seen it, check them out on Facebook. Like the page. It's an amazing venture. So I definitely say definitely, definitely get behind that. Um but as far as I'm concerned, if you're looking for a new fresh voice or you just want to test me out, uh, announcer, commentator, referee, I'm a wrestler. Even if you need somebody to work gorilla, you want somebody to help out with production on your show, 
shit, call me up. And and he's one hell of a professional, and he looks good in a suit or a dress. That was an interesting show. Um, oh my god! Okay, sidebar, Your Honor. Um, so for those of you that don't know, like, well, was it was like a year and a half ago, maybe a little somewhere in that area. We did it all women. Yeah, it was a year and a half ago. Show. Yep. The Dynasty did an all women show. And myself and a certain <coughs> Viking came up with a concept for a match where we would uh, make fun of the female athletes. But they would eventually, you know, get the upper hand on us and, you know, show that female athletes are, pretty, are very badass because they are. Um, the woman that I borrowed the dress from was a friend of my wife. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, her and my wife, they all go out for a girl's night. The first thing she says to me is, did that dress fit? <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking about it, like, what is this person talking about? Did, did the dress fit? And then my wife goes, you wrestled in the dress, remember? I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And actually, it was pretty it was pretty snug around the midsection. Yeah, you know... <laughs> What kind of what kind of wacky goddamn world do we work in, and have we worked in where our our wives' friend is asking us if their dress fit right so that you could beat up another dude in a dress? Um, so that I could beat up a Viking and drag. Oh my god, I I love pro wrestling. <laughs> and on that note, this was uh, another episode of Mental Health. Uh, thank you, Mike Falvo, for coming on once again, dude. And uh, I hope everyone out there stays safe. Uh, remember, uh, if you're non-essential, stay home. Avoid uh, contact with people. I know this sounds like the zombie apocalypse, but we'll all make it through together. And, you know, we'll all make it through this on the other side. And for everyone who is in New York that is listening to this, um, you know, hey, we can make it through this. So uh, for Mike Favo, this is Daniel Roberts. Thank you for listening.